Welcome to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. In this edition, we speak with retired Major General Liz Cosson, Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and once again, I'm joined by Kath Ziesing, the Managing Editor of Australian Defence Magazine. Kath, how are you doing? I'm really well, thanks, Grant. That's great. Now, uh, in this episode, we're joined by Liz Colson. She is the Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, and she is also the Australian Defence Magazine's Women in Defence Hall of Fame inductee for 2019. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you, Grant. Thank you for having me. Excellent. I'm going to throw to Kath to uh, do the introductions and uh, set the scene for why you're joining us today. So, Liz, you were our Hall of Fame inductee last year uh, for our Women in Defence Awards, which was absolutely fantastic. You were chosen on the grounds that you had an amazing career in uniform in Army, getting up to the rank of Major General, and then you transitioned into the Australian Public Service, where you are now working, as Grant said, as the Secretary for Veteran Affairs there. I mean, what a career. What were what were some of the highlights for you uh, throughout your Army career? Oh, thanks, Kath. And, um, and I was very honoured to actually be inducted into um, the Australian Defence Magazine Women in Defence Hall of Fame. Uh, it just meant so much to me. Um, you know, I've had a wonderful career, both in the Army, but also in the public service. And I was reflecting that there are so many highlights, but... I think the main one for me in the Army was just the mateship, the camaraderie, um, and having so many opportunities through 31 and a half years to continue to um, be the best I could be um, for Army and for this nation. I mean, when I joined the Army, it was about following in my dad's footsteps. I always said I wanted to be a soldier. Um, he didn't like that idea, to be perfectly honest, Kath. Uh, he didn't think it was a, a career for women. So um, I actually started my working life as a secretary uh, in real estate here in Canberra. And uh, Dad said to me, go off and get a business college um, certificate and uh, learn some skills before you go into the army. So I did always want to be a soldier and then to go through officer training and uh, one of 21 girls who we knew we were breaking ground um, in 1979. And uh, that's a huge highlight that I'm so proud of. And then, as I said, to to have opportunities um, on many postings, um, which I'm happy to talk to you about, but just a wonderful career. Wow. Um, I was just wondering there, Liz, you said you were, you know, one of the first 21 people, definitely females, going through the school at the time. Were you RMC at that point? No, Kath, back in 1979, we were still um, the Women's Royal Australian Army Corps School up in Georges Heights in Sydney. But it was the first year that um, the 33 women that started, we were going through a groundbreaking training year. Uh, they had aligned that training with the uh, Portsea Officer Cadet School at Portsea. And uh, it was the 78, I think, was the first year women received equal pay uh, for equal work in the Army. So 79 was to say, as a result of that, you should go through similar training. So when we uh, marched into the, the gates of um, RAC school, as it was called, to, to be the first 12-month um, officer cadet course for women, we knew we were breaking ground. We knew that we were actually setting a direction for women in the Army. And as, uh, as I mentioned, 21 graduated from that year. 
But it was a year that we really didn't have all the equipment that women needed. I remember and uh, my my colleagues from that year reminded me that I didn't have the proper boots. Um, they called my military boots pixie boots because they were really for um, school cadets uh, because I have small feet. So um, I had to do my training in um, cadet boots and we we used to have to do obstacle courses and uh, we had our 40-year reunion last year. And uh, I was reflecting and they were reflecting on the fact that to do an obstacle course in 1979, it was a makeshift obstacle course where they put a wooden wardrobe on the playing field and that was what we had to jump over. You can imagine jumping over a wardrobe, not quite as jump good as jumping over a wall. Um, so all of those little tests that we went through and they'd adjust and they'd say, well, women can actually do these sort of things. And it was such an incredible year um, that we kept demonstrating what women are capable of. And that's what it all came down to. What are women capable of? Because if you give them a chance, they will demonstrate they are capable of so much. And the 21 of us, when we stood on that parade ground in December of 1979, we knew that we were extremely uh, prepared and equipped for our careers ahead of us. So um, that was a wonderful year, Kath. I, I just find it amazing that, you know, obviously the changes had been made for women to come into uniform and do these things, but it sounds like there was a lot of uh, lack of planning, I guess, after that point. What were some of the big changes that had to happen organisationally for Army to encourage more women into their ranks? So, you're correct in that uh, at that time, only about 10% of the Army were women. So, it was a, a male-dominated environment. I think a lot of planning went into the curriculum um, for that year and it was really close to what our colleagues in Portsea were going through Um And so that planning was spot on and it was um, incredible how they prepared us for um, going on the military range and firing all the different weapons and learning um, tactics and um, radio telephone procedures, et cetera. So the learning part of that year was uh, incredible. But I don't think they were as well prepared for what equipment we might need. Um, And I think it was a lot of, well, how far can you actually test um, the women because they had never done it before. And uh, a lot of our instructors, uh, the male instructors, um, our senior instructor, he's a Vietnam veteran. He really had not had a lot to do with women um, in the armed forces. And he kept adjusting that training, that physical training, based on what he was able to observe we were capable of. And to this day, I still say what an inspiration he was, but what a great champion he was for women women because he was there witnessing what we could do. And I remember he had us running through the, the, the fields at Pakapanyol and it was wet and it was miserable and I'm running in my pixie boots and I can hear him yelling at me, Cadet Cosson, get up and run. <laughs> you know, but he, he, he kept pushing and pushing us. But we knew that we could do it, Kath. And he never made us do anything that was outside our capability, but we kept showing him that we were more capable than what he really ever expected. So it it was just that continually adjusting and learning and adapting uh, to an environment um, in that 12 months. And we got a lot of military military discipline, but also self-discipline in that process. Because the late 70s, that was right when... um 
Deb Laurie, for instance, was becoming the first female to fly for ANSET and actually had to take that to the Supreme Court to get that access. So it, it really was a, a pioneering, dare I say, time in the whole issue of bringing ladies into areas that are typically male only. So breaking that new ground is incredible. Oh, and, and you just look back at the, in the 70s, that decade where women had to leave military service if they were married. Women had to leave military service if they fell pregnant. As I mentioned, equal pay for equal work only came in in the late 70s. Um, and I know when I look at those other 20 ladies that um, graduated with me, we were so proud of what we, we knew we were breaking ground. Um, and I think that's where the determination came into our whole frame of reference for our, our careers ahead of us, um, that we were determined to demonstrate what we could achieve. So, Liz, who were some of your classmates that were in that kind of era? Who were the other, I guess, groundbreakers with you? Um, I'm privileged that I went on to reach the, the high ranks in the Army. A lot of my female colleagues, um, Barbara Pepper was one who um, I was always very close to. She went on and joined the public service after her military service. Um, there was um, Debbie Smith who actually went on and continued to serve for, for many years. I think Debbie served for over 20 years. She didn't reach the highest ranks because she went and had a family and she raised two beautiful children. Um, I wasn't pr- fortunate enough to, to have a family, so I stayed um, in service for my 31 and a half years. And I, I often look back on that era where a number of women were not able to go and have um, the children because just the, the nature of uh, continuity of service and some of us chose that pathway that we wanted to continue to serve. But um, someone like Debbie and um, another one was uh, Amanda McCallum, they left to have their children but then came back. Um, And so therefore they paused their career to to do both. And they made incredible contributions um, to Army but also uh, to their other careers that they then pursued. Do you think Army is getting better at handling those family transitions that men and women both face? Oh, definitely, Kath. And um, Army's policies now, or defence policies more broadly, uh, actually benefit both males and females. It's that recognition that both parents um, would like to have the opportunity to parent but also have a career. And if I look at the senior ranks in Army now for women, we have a number of women who are at those most senior ranks who have had children. And it just shows me that um, Defence has come a long way in its um, understanding of diversity and its policies um, for family. And uh, that is an incredible um, um incredible achievement of the leadership of defence to recognise that over these past decades. Yeah. I uh, I was actually recording yesterday some of the uh, the pre-record sessions for the Women in Defence Awards this year, and one of our finalists is Major General Tash Fox, the, uh, the head of Defence People Group, and she mentioned some of the work that uh, you and her have been doing to set up the Commissioner for Veteran Suicide and prevention in that space. Can you tell us a bit more about the work that you've been doing in that uh, realm? So, I love Major General Natasha Fox. Um, She is an incredible inspiration to um, leaders in in defence, both male and female, of someone who is absolutely um, driven and determined and and on top of all that, uh, remarkably capable. Um, But if I I can, Kath, um, 
one of the, the key roles for me in uh, leading the Department of Veterans Affairs, it is a job I'm really proud of and I see as it is an extension of my military service because it's still looking after the men and women and their families um, who have uh, put up their hands to serve this nation. And what Natasha and I have been working very closely on for the past couple of years is making sure we recognise where there are risks Most people transition from their military service and go on to lead really successful careers, uh, go into really um, purposeful employment. But there are a few that find it challenging uh, after military service to re-establish that purpose and potentially go into employment that doesn't really suit them. And so what Natasha and I have been doing is looking at that transition pathway and identifying where are their gaps in the service that um, Defence and DVA can close. What could we do to remove the risk? And with the announcement of the establishment of that National Commissioner for Defence and Veteran Suicide Prevention, Natasha and I know that the purpose of that is to once again look at all those causal factors for past suicides, but importantly into the future so that we can continue to stay on top of what we need to be doing and to make it better for those men and women who transition and to support their families. Wonderful. It's been really interesting watching the evolution of DVA over the last few years because we, we have that new generation of veterans um, coming through the system that have seen you know, a lot of time in Afghanistan and the Middle East, uh, the peacekeeping missions which have happened in our region over the past two decades. How would you say the DVA system has evolved to meet the changing needs, I guess, of veterans uh, moving from the you know World War One and two and Korean and Vietnam veterans, what is what is the difference, I guess, in the level of care that veterans now receive? So uh, I think, Kathy, the important thing for us was to start to listen more to our veterans and their experience. And um, back in uh, 2016, this department recognised that we needed to be learning more from them about what we could do differently, what we could do better. And that was extremely powerful. And that told us that a lot of um, the veterans and families found it really complicated to navigate our system. And they found that we lacked empathy and we lacked an appreciation of what service meant. And so we we established what we call our four pillars of what we need to do. And the first is about knowing our veterans, knowing what military service is all about and knowing what the family experience is to support someone who serves. And I know personally uh, with my father and my husband, who are both veterans, growing up as um, a child of a veteran and growing and then being a partner of a veteran, the family dynamic is so important. and. Just knowing that experience and um, the second pillar was then connecting with them when they enlist. And this is the work Natasha and I have also been doing. If we know you from your service and connect with you before you leave, then it won't be as hard to navigate what's available to you. Um, and the third is then to, to make sure we've got the right support in place. And this is what we've learned from um, suicide and we've learned from the discussions we've had with veterans and families, how do you connect them to the right support? And sometimes if it's slow for us to respond to you, 
we make sure that if you are at risk or greater risk of mental health conditions or suicide, connect you to that support straight away. Um, so those three pillars have really evolved in listening to our veteran community. But the fourth one is respecting that service, which I mentioned is having that empathy um, and through that knowing, connecting and supporting. Last year in 2019, we put through Parliament uh, a new bill which is about that veterans' recognition. And it's an oath to say that we as a grateful nation uh, want to make sure that we support you for what you have done, this we will do. And that's enshrined now in legislation. And this is where we're preparing now for the next generation of veterans because we've uh, ensured that we're, we're giving them different support, um, but be- I believe better support uh, to serve them into the future. Liz? What kind of relationship does DVA have with, um, you know, I guess the ex-service organisations community? So the soldier-ons, the mates for mates, the the working spirits of the world. How do you, I guess, partner and leverage the capabilities that are out in the community? So, Kath, I wish we partnered with more, but the point is for me, we are all united for the one purpose. We are, or we should be, all united for the interests of our veterans and families. I often reflect and think, wouldn't we be a powerful voice for veterans and families if that we if we weren't fighting each other? Um, I have a great partnership with a number of ex-service organisations and veteran service organisations, um, and I don't need to call out who they are, but um, there are others that uh, would rather criticise us than work with us, and I encourage them to come to our table and tell us how you can help us be um, a united voice for our veteran community. And I feel very um, confident that there are some that are now saying to me, and and I'm meeting a wonderful veteran on Friday, tomorrow, uh, where he reached out and he said, Liz, I don't know about everything you're doing, but I might be able to help you get some message out there because if we are united, we can make sure veterans um, who need us know what's available and we can give them hope again to say, don't despair, there is some hope for you that there are programs available to you and connect them with those programs and support. But also, don't try and duplicate what the government pays for. The department receives $11.7 billion a year uncapped, demand-driven. The more the demand is, the more funding we receive to support our veteran community. So if you are an ex-service organisation or a an organisation supporting veterans, work out what it is that we're paid for, tap into that. Don't use uh, donations that you receive for work that we can do. Use your donations to do what we can't do. And that's where I say um, ex-service organisations and veteran service organisations, I want you to focus on mateship. I want you to focus on being there for the well-being of veterans where I can't be because I, I can't be your mate because I am a bureaucracy. But I can do so much more if you tell me what it is that we're we're missing. And wow, couldn't we make a difference if we all work together? Liz, you've been in these huge leadership roles now for a good 20, 30 years. What advice would you give to the next generation of leaders coming through? So, you know, people in their 20s, 30s and 40s that are now getting into those types of roles, what would you say to those people that are, you know, looking for a mentor and looking for the next steps in their leadership journey? 
Um, the key message, one of the key ones I learned very early, Kath, is uh, you are con- in control of your destiny. Take control. Uh, throughout my career, I was told on many occasions I'd reached my ceiling rank, that I was not going to progress in the army, um, that um, I was too narrow. Um, uh, I was aviation logistics grant and um, I was told you will never get promoted past the rank of major because you are too narrow, you are too streamed. I was then told after I went to Bougainville, mm, okay, you've reached your ceiling rank of lieutenant colonel. Um, so no one was shaping my career for me. I had to do that. I had to look at, well, what's the message I'm hearing? How do I convert that not into disappointment, but into opportunity? What do I need to do to reshape myself to actually achieve what I want to achieve in my career? And it was similarly when I joined the public service, Kath, um, I was told I would never be a secretary of a department which I said I wanted to be the secretary of this department because I saw that that's what I wanted to do in my second career. I was told, no, um, you're not a traditional public service servant. You don't have the experience of being in a central agency. You've never been in a policy agency. Um, so what I was then provided is opportunity to learn to be a public servant and I started to gain that experience by making sure I took those opportunities. And when the opportunity came to come back to this department as a deputy secretary, I said to the secretary of the day, I will, I want to come back because I want your job. I said that to two secretaries of this department. <laughs> the first one said to me, oh, Liz, you really need to get out and about uh, before you ever come back and get my job. And then the one, this, my predecessor said to me, I will help you. And uh, he, he gave me the opportunity to come in the department and I was privileged to work under his leadership for two years where he shaped my knowledge of the public service and gave me those opportunities, Kath. And so I took control throughout my 40-year career to take me where I wanted to go. And sometimes there are disappointments. But goodness me, if you can use the disappointment for opportunity, um, that was my first message um, that I want any leader to take away. And the second one, and uh, which I'll finish on, is know yourself. Um, I learned through a career, unless I was being authentic, uh, I, was, I wasn't happy. So just know who you are and importantly, know what your values are because you draw on them every day is when you exercise judgment and you make decisions through hardship, building resilience, whatever it is. If you know who you are and you are true to your values, you can get through any challenge in a career. So they are two of the, the key messages I'd say to any leader. But sorry, I should pick up on your mentorship um, and the importance of mentors and champions and networks. Those three, um, you have to have all three. I had champions um, and I will always be grateful for them to help guide my my thinking um, and where I wanted to go. I had mentors. Shireen McKinney was a mentor of mine. Um, But I also had networks to draw that strength when you are facing your challenges and that trusted network who you can go to, your trusted mentor, your trusted champions, create that trusted space um, that you know who to turn to when you need them. I, I am a big believer in the tribe, I have to say, Liz, like the people around you that support you and advocate for you 
uh, and champion for you, but are also afraid to point out that, you know, have you really thought about that? Uh, are you yeah. sure you want to go down that road? Mm, um, correct. You know, that, that sanity check um, yeah. is such an important function of the tribe around you. And it's really wonderful, I have to say, that's what we're, we're looking to build with the Women in Defence Awards, that alumni network of amazing women that you can turn to or that even if you just, you know, go to a conference, you know someone in the room. Yeah, because, Cass, one of the things that they also, as you said, to that they're not afraid to tell you, um, you know, to tell you oh, some yeah. truth and it's trusted, but also to give you courage because sometimes women really struggle with this imposter syndrome. And I know that I some days have that imposter syndrome and, and I work with some lovely female leaders, but male leaders as well. But I see it more in females where um, – you need to give them the courage to say, no, go for it. And I know that one of my champions before I went to Bougainville um, and he, he said to me, Liz, you've served for 20 years, mate. If you don't think you're ready for that, when will you ever be ready? Just go for it. And I said, oh, I don't know, sir, if I can do this. And he said, I'm not, I'm not hearing you. <laughs> go for it. And I did. And I must admit that leading up in the training and the getting there, I, I doubted myself. But I kept hearing Steve Jones saying to me, mate, you can do this. And that courage to go outside my comfort zone. And when I got there to recognize Army had prepared me so well. And what an incredible highlight of my career to actually have that experience. Um, so, yes, the having that, that network, as you're describing, Kath, can serve so many valuable purposes for anybody in a career. So build it and value it. Mm. And maintain it as well. Yep. I think that's Absolutely. the other big one. You know, this year, 2020 has, I think, really proved the worth of having those connections with people. Uh, so, who you, you can pick up the phone to and go, I've got this issue. Can you help? Yeah. I think that's really valuable. That's right. And mentorship takes um, commitment as well and investment. If someone asks you to be uh, your mentor, to be their mentor, just recognize as well that you need to invest that time and value that time that you're actually helping somebody um, navigate through what can be a very challenging environment. And as you said, Kath, particularly during COVID, um, and, and I hope that I have been able to do that for those that I'm mentoring that just give them that time, which I learn from as well, because I learn, yeah, what they're experiencing and what they're facing. And I think, oh my goodness me, I remember when I faced that 20 years ago, but also, oh, I should be aware of that, that that's happening in my environment as well. So you, you gain as much as you give. Wonderful. Liz, thank you so much for sharing your time and experiences with us today. Um, I was blown away by some of your reflections, you know, for that, that first year in 1979 um, going into the army and how much things have changed. Like, could you imagine any woman today putting up with pixie boots? Um, <laughs> it, ju it just wouldn't happen. Um, so I love the fact that army as an organization has grown over that time and that you're, you're kicking goals in your new role post army now in DVA and the work that you're doing with Tash Fox and others to make sure that veterans are given the level of care that they deserve. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Kath. I appreciate that. 
There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks to Liz for coming on the show and thanks to Kath for uh, guiding us down that uh, discussion. Very informative, amazing stuff. And uh, we'll wrap up this episode here and we'll be back with the next one and in the not too distant future. Thank you. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yeffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence, or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au, or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. Thank you.